Hey there, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by Makers Mercantile. Makers Mercantile is a space for fueling your creativity, inspiring you to make using any medium you feel passionate about. Their online shop carries supplies for sewing, weaving, knitting, crochet, dyeing, and more, plus curated gifts, books, craft storage, and apparel. I think you get an idea. It's pretty much a crafter's haven for happiness. You can find them at makersmercantile.com, but stay tuned towards the end of the show for an offer from them that you won't want to miss. This week, I sat down with Natalie Channon, a pioneer in the slow design movement and the creative force behind the sustainably made goods lifestyle company, Alabama Channon. Due to a scheduling conflict, our conversation was cut short, so I was unable to squeeze in all of the questions I'd intended. During the time we did have, though, Natalie filled me in on the slow fashion philosophy, her signature piecework design style, and the importance of knowing where the origin materials for what you put in and on your body come from. Someday, I would love to continue our conversation. Only instead of talking over Skype, perhaps our chat can happen while sitting across from each other at a farmhouse table eating organic tomatoes from her crops in her Alabama factory. For now, though, I'm happy to introduce her here. Natalie Channon, thank you for being on Craftish. Thank you for having me. I was reading in an interview that you did uh, last year, I believe, for the LA Times, um, a quote that you said, and it really resonated to, to me, although I'm not sure that it was because of the intended, um, the meaning that you intended, but I wanted to read it um, to open up this conversation. You said, the experience of making something with your hands cannot be overestimated. Anyone who tries to make even the most basic garment gains an understanding of what it takes to make a finished product. It adds value to every dress in your closet or every t-shirt in your drawer. I loved that for, and, and I, this is obviously an intro to slow fashion, which I want to talk to you, but I also, I, worked at, I work in the knitting and crochet industry, and there's also a huge discrepancy over value of designers in general. A lot of us are still, or a lot of a lot of designers are still being paid the same wage or less as they were in the '80s. And I'm wondering if what you're saying about fashion won't also wouldn't also apply to the value of the people that are making the things. If this isn't is if this isn't something on a larger level, we need to be looking at so that not only are the actual pieces valued, but the people behind them are valued. Will you speak a little to that? Um, yes, absolutely. You know, just in general, I mean, I, I always talk about it that we grew up in a nation that of makers, right? I mean, when I was a young girl, it was really like American products were the pinnacle of great design and great manufacturing. We were exporting all over the world. And I think the people who were designing and those making the, making those products were um, celebrated in so many ways. And um, that's just something that um, both the products themselves and the people who make them have really I think been downgraded um, since I was a child. And so this whole movement is really about celebrating, as you say, not only the products, but the makers themselves. So we speak a little bit about uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar about the difference between fast fashion and slow fashion. Absolutely. Well, we 
um, slow fashion really, that term grew out of the slow food movement. So Slow Food International, their credo is good, clean, fair. And, um, you know, this was really, uh, slow food helped change the entire food movement in many ways, you know, bringing back to the conversation back to locally grown food that um, not only for its um, buying food locally, for its practice of sustainability, so saving the environment and supporting local economies, but also just for the taste of the food that, you know, a tomato grown in your own backyard tastes so much different than a tomato that's been shipped um, Mm. around the world and you just can't replicate that and so um you know good clean fare really starts with the good like it tastes better than um than the alternative and so um much of this uh, talk around slow food has been adopted by the fashion industry for the exact same reasons. I mean, the fashion industry is one of the dirtiest industries on the planet. It's sometimes hard to believe that, but just between chemicals and water and um, just the accelerating speed with which we consume clothing um, has really is making an impact globally right now. So, Uh, Slow fashion is asking people to slow down, to figure out who made their pieces, uh, how they were made, what chemicals were used in the process of making, and how the people making them were treated. So good, clean, fair. How do you think we make that less overwhelming to a mainstream consumer who, you know... we're all so busy and we have so much information coming at us now and that's something I'm really conscious of and I know how overwhelming it can be for people to think not only do I have to think about what store I'm going to or what I'm buying for my children or what but where did the fabric come from more than that where did the fiber that made the fabric come from more than that where did the worker who picked the cotton to make that car how do you how do you sort of make that work in more of a bite size so that on a global level, it seems more accessible. Well, the first thing that you can do is just consume less, right? The fewer pieces you purchase, the the less you have to ask those questions. I mean, in some ways that's unrealistic because we, you know, we want to live beautiful lives and have beautiful products. But, uh, I mean, that's a very easy first choice, right? Mm-hmm. Um Number two is you can look for companies that are very transparent in the way they make things. A lot of people are now, you know, Patagonia has great um, website where they um, post on their site where things are being made and um, and the materials that they're being made with, um, and also offer an end of life. Uh, solution for those garments so if you uh, are finished with a jacket that you bought at Patagonia you may also return that to Patagonia so it's um, either recycled repurposed or um, or you know taken to a fitting end that has little to no environmental impact Mm -hmm. 
So. I, I think that it, it's been really interesting how even over just the past, I don't know, maybe 20 years, how much the industry has changed. I remember, um, and this was longer ago than that, but I remember, you know, needing to have a garage sale or whatever to make the money to buy my homecoming dress. And at the time <laughs> it was like 80 bucks. Well, now yeah. you can go and you can get a dress that was equivalent. You could get it for thirty nine ninety nine, And this is, you know, 25 years ago or whatever. It's gone in a total opposite direction. Um, and I'm not sure that this generation realizes how different that is. Mm-hmm. We just had less. I had one pair of guest jeans and I just wore them every single day because they were $55 then. You know? <laughs> and they were great, right? Of course, of course they were. But I wouldn't have had five pair, you know. Um, but right. now we're accustomed to having the five pair. Yeah, and I, but I think that's something that's very easy to, you know, wean yourself off of. I mean, that's the first step, I think, is, is uh, lightening up your wardrobe. Yeah. Do you think that your journey into slow fashion was at all affected by the fact that your mom and, and your grandmother worked in a, in a plant themselves, in a military underwear plant? Well, that was my great grandmother and my grandmother. So my mom didn't actually your work great grandmother and grandmother. My okay. great grandmother and my grandmother both worked in these um, underwear factories. But um, I, I would say it's less that particular part of my family history than my grandmother's living on a farm and really making everything for their family themselves. I think I was very deeply impacted by that. Um, even though it may not have been apparent when I was young, but uh, looking back on my childhood, it was um, it was just a given that you know all of the beautiful things that were in our lives that our grandma, my grandmothers made them. You know, they made all the food that went on the table. They, you know, one grandmother made all of her bread. I mean, everything that we ate, everything that we drank, everything that we. You know, it was all made right there on the farm. I mean, from the lace that was tatted to, um, you know, to put on sheets to, um, you know, my my father's mother made all the underwear for her family. Wow. Right. So, I mean, they were just very self-reliant and really prided themselves on the beautiful work that they um, could accomplish with their own two hands. And I think that I grew up in this atmosphere of, of course, we can make anything. Were you interested in textiles when you were a child? Yes. <laughs> yes, I was always very interested in clothing. So I, I, I would, you know, even though my grandmothers inspired me so much, I would, I would have to say that I was much less inspired by the process of making than I was all of the beautiful um, prom dresses, as she said earlier, <laughs> and all the things that were hanging in my grandmother's attic. You know, she I still think- had them? Oh, she kept everything she had ever made. What treasures, what treasures. All my aunt's clothes and dresses were all in the closets there. And so I used to spend kind of a lot of time upstairs uh, in the attic that had been built out and going through these closets and closets of clothes and boxes of jewelry and you know, that was kind of my life. <laughs> was uh, Were you inherently creative as a child? Uh, I would say I was very craftsy I, uh, and, and crafty. I, um, 
you know, I, I, I'm not a great machine sewer, but I did learn to sew by machine. I, I loved crocheting, and um, I'm, I have a 10-year-old daughter now, and I'm kind of watching her um, creative interests unfold. And um, I, I think we're very much alike. She will dabble in this and dabble in that and try these things and do those things and really surrounds herself with it, but doesn't. she hasn't latched on to one thing like she's not you know a knitter at heart and I, I think I was very much that way I loved making things but you know it ranged from candles and soap to you know blankets and pot holders and I don't know beaded bracelets <laughs> was that mostly with your grandmother's um toolage or was your mom also creative um or father uh, well, my both my parents were very creative. So my dad was a builder. He started out as a carpenter and um, uh, wound up owning a uh, construction company. So, you know, we he was building things my entire childhood. My mother is a mathematician, and really? um, she was very creative with math and um, was also a knitter. So I think this culture of making was definitely part of my childhood. I love that you just said creative with math, because I often I'll come across you through interviewing um, people or teaching courses. I come across again, again, people who say I'm not creative. And a lot of times they say it's more because I'm more math minded or more science minded. And, and I try and I, I really it's my hope that with statements like what you just made, that people realize that there is creativity in everyone, it just may um, expose itself differently that you can be creative with math or you can be creative with science or you can be creative with you know uh, the obvious things like paint yeah I, I really find you know human beings are innately creative I mean it's very unusual when you find someone who isn't where I, in my in my opinion you know they may like you said they may not be paint, uh, creative with paints or um, you know fabrics but you know, it doesn't matter what your job you do, people who do their jobs well are creative in the way they approach their jobs and finding solutions to make things flow more smoothly or look more beautiful or, um, you know, service a customer in a better way. It, it takes creativity to do any of those things well. Yeah, and I think for knitting specifically that you mentioned that your mom did, knitting um, can be very mathy, and I often wish that I was better with math <laughs> because I, my designs would probably be more creative. Um, often those things that you think are not being creative are really amazing tools towards creativity. Well, we've, I've just finished a book that's coming out in the spring of next year called The Geometry of Sewing. Oh, so I think... That's brilliant. I always say if I had been taught geometry through quilting and algebra through knitting, I would probably have had a completely <laughs> different educational experience. Ah, that's such a great uh, that's such a great idea. I hope all the teachers out there that are listening to this will um, will use that. You work primarily in cotton. Will you talk a little bit about, in, in that same NPR interview that I read um, about your great-grandmother and, and grandmother, uh, you had talked about how cotton has a really ugly history and how it's built fortunes and has destroyed nations um, and enslaved people. Um, and I would, love, I would love if you would talk about sort of why your heart lies with this fiber and, and, and your part in making a new story for cotton. 
Sure. Um, well, you know, I mean, I I'm, was born in the 60s, so I'm really a child of the 60s and 70s. And, I mean, this is really the time uh, when cotton jersey fabric was going from being hidden on underneath clothing to being exposed on the outside of clothing or to actual be a piece of clothing. You know, before that time, T-shirts were really just considered to be worn underneath men's shirts, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, as I was coming up in the 70s, I mean, I found out years later that this community that I'm from was considered the t-shirt capital of the world. So, um, a lot of those, um, sorry, I just had a, an email. I should have shut this off. Did you hear that ding? I didn't. I didn't. That's fine. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to turn my um, email off. So... I, during the 70s in this community, it, um, it was considered the t-shirt capital of the world because a lot of the factories around here were working, you know, three shifts a day making t-shirts. And, and this um, concept of the t-shirts really grew out of those mills that my grandmothers uh, and my grandmother and my great-grandmother worked in. So it's just an extension of that. And, um, you know, there were T-shirts with, like, printed sayings on the outside of them or, um, you know, logos and things like that. And so it was really um, – and, if uh, you know, I guess if you can do some research back uh, into the 70s, you would find, you know, there were all kinds of T-shirts being sold with little – um, things sewn on them and those kinds of things. And so I really grew up in this culture of the T-shirt, um, you know, kind of oblivious to it in my own way as well when I was in junior high school and high school. You know, I was really not so much interested in the things themselves, but more just living my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, it wasn't until later I began to realize that it was really part of the culture of this community. Um uh, after I started the business and came home and started sewing with cotton jersey fabric, it really became the core of our collection, um, primarily because in the beginning I was working with these recycled T-shirts. And as we moved into or using organic cotton yardage and I tried to develop other fabrics and other fibers and um, we were selling to quite a few stores by that time, the, the company had had really grown and, you know, it just turned out that people were really mainly interested in cotton jersey from us. Um, so... It, it was partially, part of it came from my history, part of it came from just the beginnings of the company, and part of it came from us um, eventually kind of being put in this box and just going with it. <laughs> you know? so. But you could have stopped at sourcing organic cotton from, you know, anywhere in the world, and you chose to focus on the U.S., and then you, you chose to go a step further and focused on knowing where the seeds were from, and then having some form of stake in a cotton field. What can you? What led you to that decision? <laughs> well, I I think in everything with this business, I mean, I would love to say that I was this very you know learned businesswoman and that I had made a plan for this, but I do have to say that it was you know part plan, part just uh, evolution. So. You know, very early on, I made a commitment to sustainability, and, you know, it doesn't take you long when you're researching cotton to 
to know um, the horrors of the pesticides and all those things that are have been used in the last 50 years to grow the crop. And, you know, I, I mean, I also have to say I'm from this community. I know about crop dusters. Mm-hmm. I know about, you know, the poisons and the illnesses that come from that. And so it really didn't, it doesn't, it's not a big leap to get there. You know, anybody who's ever bought a T-shirt can go online today and, it, you know, you don't get too deep in before you understand that it's kind of uh, very detrimental. And so, you know, just making a commitment to saying, well, I don't want to be part of that. It takes you down a particular road. And then you say, okay, if we use the same guidelines for the company that we use for our food, if we say we want to get our product as close to home as possible, then it doesn't take you long to find the farmers in Texas who are growing our cotton. And then once you develop relationships with people like that, it, it, you know, it grows and it flourishes and you want to support that and continue to work with them. And so um, it's really been this kind of process. And, you know, the field ourself is growing a field ourselves really came from a friend of mine, KP McNeil, who just asked a question one day randomly, like, what would it take to grow a cotton field? Like, could we do that? Could Mm -hmm. we have it? You know, would it grow here? <laughs> and what was the answer? Uh, uh, it did. I mean, it wasn't easy. And, um, you know, we made a lot of mistakes along the way. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that we put the seed in the ground, it rained, the cotton grew, and it came to fruition. You know, Mother Nature will have her way. And, and it, um, you know, we, we planted it wrong so that we couldn't, uh, we weren't able to use a machine to pick it. So we picked oh, what wow. we could by hand and with the help of a lot of people from all over the United States came and picked cotton here. And, um, and uh, we made it into fabric. It, it took almost two years, the entire process from ha- trying to find the seed all the way through to making finished goods with the fabric that we made from that cotton. But it was a beautiful, beautiful um, project to be a part of. What does that feel like? What does that feel like to wear a garment for which you planted the seeds? (laughs) Well, I will say that um, the knitters in North Carolina who processed the cotton for us said that it was the most beautiful cotton they had ever seen. Hmm. So, um, you know, I think... It would be very rare um, that that kind of cotton is available anywhere on earth, you know, just because it It just can't be affordable. It doesn't seem like... It can't. I mean, you you can't. Our friend Lisa, who tended the field, actually named some of the plants. I mean, there was never a cotton more loved than this cotton in this field. And, you know, if you talk about the ugly history of, of cotton, I mean, there was a lot of love and a lot of kindness and a lot of... Um, willing hands that picked that um, that beautiful fiber, but you know it doesn't even scratch the surface on trying to figure out how you balance that ugly history with a clean, beautiful future. Does your conscience ever butt heads with your business mind? <laughs> <laughs> Every day. Every day. Maybe. Yeah. Because you've found a way to 
really live your truth and make a, a successful business out of it. Would you mind talking a little bit about that journey? Because it can't, if you said that you didn't inherently have a business mind and you've kind of learned as many artists do through trial and error, I would love to hear a little bit about that journey. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that we still struggle every single day. I know it's, you know, the dream is people want to, I mean, we do have a beautiful company and we have amazing people who work in our company and I'm really, really lucky to be here with the, with the people that I'm, I'm working with. But, you know, the truth is we struggle every day. And so while it may seem, you know, like we have this big successful company on the outside, I mean, we still have our struggles, you know. Um, I, I often say this, what we're doing is not for the faint of heart. And I, I say that, you know, with the best intention in mind, not to be like, oh, this is too hard or this is, um, you know, uh, one, a, a person who used to work with us always used to say, if this was easy, everybody on this street would be doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's certainly easier solutions you can make. You cannot care where the fabric comes from. You can not care how long the product lasts. You can you can you know, there's all sorts of decisions that you can make that would make it easier. But it's that's not uh, it's not interesting for me then. You know, it's not my goal to just make as much product as I can and sell as much as I can to you know, to know without looking at what the effect of it is. Longevity of pieces is something that is part of the slow fashion movement, but it really sounds like it's part of who, you know, the core of your soul. And I wanted to talk a little bit about heirloom pieces. For me, you know, in knit and crochet wear design, I've, I've found the importance, there's an entire generation that doesn't really have a lot of heirlooms when it went really out of favor to hand make things. And now I think it's really, you know, important that we bring those back because they're also telling our own history through those pieces, whether it be a quilt or a garment or, you know, a, a sweater. Do you, are you conscious when you're designing a collection or when you're having um you know, when you're producing fabric, are you conscious of the fact that these pieces are telling a story, your story, or the story of people whose hands have touched it? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is really the core of who we are. Uh, someone asked me at an event that I did uh, earlier this week if if storytelling you know, what role that played. And really the company, since the very beginning, we've been telling stories. I mean, we started a blog 10 years ago and, um, you know, this is a very symbiotic relationship. So it's very easy today to put designers kind of at the helm of something and their celebrities. But I think if you look at the very best designers, you'll see that they really build, um, they build their team, build and celebrate their teams around them because, you know, without all the hands that make this, it's impossible to be a designer. And so um, story and this idea of making pieces that tell stories and making pieces that last for a very, very long time are um, really at the core of what we do. It's what makes our job fun. 
And your heirloom collections are all, they're all hand sewn by artisans who, who also have their own businesses, correct? Uh, in part, yes. I mean, until about three years ago, that was the case. So three years ago, we um, got some machines and we set up a machine manufacturing division with the help of uh, Terry Wiley, who was one of the manufacturers in our um, community when in the heyday of t-shirt manufacturing. And so three years ago, we started trying to learn again how to make t-shirts in this community. And um, it's really it took me a while to understand this, but the, you know, making things by machine or making by hand are both equally as hard to make long-lasting, beautiful mm. pieces. And so, um, today our collection are sewn uh, some pieces by hand, some pieces by machine, and you'll see coming up in the near future some pieces that are sewn both by hand and machine. So creating a conversation between these two different ways of making that are very, very different, but inherently exactly the same. Why was it important to you, you know, up until, not that it's not anymore, but what, at, at the time that you were working with, with business owners exclusively, why was it important to you that they also have their own, their own gig? Well, it's really, that has to do with labor law. So um, it is against the law to sew women's clothes in the home by the hour. So this is a, kind of a really big conversation that, um, you know, it's really important for those women who need to work in their own homes so that they operate as a business and hold themselves open as business owners to work for other people as well. You have tours of your factory, and I was struck by the fact that they're drop-in, that you don't have to make appointments. Because, well, you hear so many horror stories overseas about how, you know, and I've worked with, I've worked with companies that go out to manufacturers in, in, in other countries, and they said, well, I saw, I saw the factory. It looked beautiful. They entertained us. The workers looked happy. And I said, but yes, but they knew you were coming. <laughs> and I wonder if you would talk about it looks like you're just from looking at the pictures and reading up uh, about the Alabama Channing factory well a couple things you know because it, it is housed in a in a former manufacturing plant um, but also because it's open to the public it seems like you're you're trying to sort of redefine the word factory um, yes, yeah, so our factory is open um, Monday through Friday. Um, we have a factory. We have our our uh, our store. Our um, what's that word? Um, our flagship store. Our flagship store is in the factory. We also have a cafe, so you can see the collections that we're working on. You can have lunch with us, and then at two o'clock each day, um, we we give an open tour of the factory. So, um, and you know, it's really funny because we're kind of in the industrial park on the outskirts of Florence, Alabama, and sometimes there will be twenty five people there just show up for the tour randomly. You wow. know. From all over the country uh, because I think you know the truth of it is is that we're makers at heart and um, I think the majority of us who are over a certain age remember a time when this was a country of makers and uh, I think people are hungry to see that again and understand it and see it with their own two eyes to believe that it's true and and it is <laughs> so yeah you're creating awareness sort of locally 
as well as globally. That's fantastic. You, I was wondering what the correlation. You've you now have a cafe in your establishment. Was that in any way to marry the slow food and the slow fashion movements together? Uh, it just um, it just you know it it grew out of uh, uh, a culture of service. So we do a lot of workshops in our space and wanting to serve our workshop customers. Um, it does, I have been in alignment over the last 15 years with many chefs and growers across the South. And that certainly was a part of um, forming the cafe. So uh, there's a really a lot of reasons behind it. And also just the fact that we're in an industrial park and, you know, we all want to eat really good food. And so <laughs> we just made a place where we can have beautiful food every single day. Your style of design is hand-pieced, almost kind of reverse trapunto. Will you talk a little bit about how you created a distinct hand-pieced style for your brand? Well, I, I think it evolved out of the, it, or not a thing, it definitely evolved out of the techniques that our artisans were able to um, accomplish and so over the years the techniques have gotten more and more and more complicated and uh, definitely was also part of my evolution as a designer so again there's that symbiotic relationship you can design whatever you want but if you can't get it made then you know there's no um, there's no place for it and so it's this kind of conversation with makers and designers that you're able to get to a place where you can use the tools that are available to both to create something you know miraculous yeah we talked uh we talked about obviously your amazing business and we talked about your childhood but there's a big there's a big gap in between where I'm wondering how do, how do you go from searching through your you know grandmother's great grandmother's prom dresses and and you know notions to to having this you know amazing design sustainable design company did you go did you go to art school did you go for uh, fashion well, design I, I have a degree in design from North Carolina State University so the um the College of Tech of um, Design within the university, and there's also a School of Textiles, and I did kind of a double major in both of those. So that was an amazing education that I had that really laid the groundwork for the designer that I am today. So you currently or recently have an exhibit at the Georgia Clark Alabama Artist Gallery, and I was also you know, just drooling over this cast fabric cuff that you have on your website where you talk about how it's handcrafted. And I wondered if you'd speak a little bit to um, a theme that's really, that is one of my favorite things to talk about on this podcast. Um, and that's art versus craft. If you identify more with the art side, <laughs> with the craft side, and if there is at all a difference to you. Um, well, it's really funny. I, you know, we've struggled over the years because we don't really fit in any of those genres. You know, we don't, we're sort of outside of the fashion industry. We're outside of the world of let's call it elevated craft. We're outside of the world of art where we're sort of somewhere in between in the midst of these things, touching on each and every one, but 
um, only taking parts of each. So, you know, I once had a craftsperson get really angry with me and say that, um, you know, I shouldn't be speaking of craft because we're making more than one piece of mm-hmm. each item. And then, you know, we've had our own struggles with the fashion industry and our place within the fashion industry. And um, certainly, you know, it's hard to think of oneself or, uh, you know, a frock as a piece of art. And so it's a constant conversation. Well, most certainly many of your pieces are works of art. I mean, the detailing <laughs> is extraordinary. Um, and it's interesting. I've never heard a Thank craft you. a craft person be up, be offended by the art side of it. It's almost always the, the reverse. So I think that's a really important point and a conversation I hope we continue having. Thank you so much, Natalie, for taking oh. the time out of your busy schedule. It's been lovely to chat with you. And Thank I hope to be one of oh, I hope to be so one of the people on your you tours. Me. Oh, of course. I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna show up at, at that table one of these days. Yeah, I hope so. We'll share a um, if it's this time of year, we'll share a BLT or a tomato sandwich or some uh, field peas. It's oh. a good time of year. So I would love Come that. anytime. I would love that. Thank you so much. Natalie's clothing collections, textiles, and open factory info can be found through her company's website. For more info and photos of some of her designs, check out this episode's show notes page at vickihowell.com craftish. Thanks again to our sponsor, Makers Mercantile. Right now, listeners who spend $75 or more on any Alabama Channon products, including kits at Makers Mercantile, will receive an Alabama Channon 100% organic cotton zipper bag and pencil free with code VickiMakes. That's V-I-C-K-I-E-M-A-K-E-S. That offer is good until September 22nd or as long as supplies last. Thanks to all of you who have given some love to this podcast, either to me personally or on social media or via ratings and reviews on iTunes. Craftish is a passion project, so I really, really appreciate your support. Craftish is a Campbell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. On the next episode of Craftish, Knitty Magazine founder Amy Singer. That episode will go live next Thursday. Until then, take some time to consider your creative self. Breathe in, craft out. Bye.